Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Businesses of all sizes have been affected by COVID-19. In response to this, Post Media Solutions has created a five-step guide aimed to help you adapt your business during this global crisis. To get this free guide, visit postmediasolutions.com slash adapt. Watching the stock market these days is like looking at a falling elevator. It's going down and quickly. For investors stuck at home glued to the news and monitoring their portfolios online, it can be hard not to panic. I'm Emily Jackson, and you're listening to Down to Business. This week, we're getting some advice on how to approach personal finance during the COVID-19 pandemic, geared towards people who already invest. Joining us is Financial Post personal finance columnist Jonathan Chevreau. He's written nine books on markets and investing since he started writing on the subject in the 90s. John and I discussed how the current market chaos compares to the 2008 financial crisis, generational differences in investment strategies, and how he sees this playing out. We spoke remotely. John, thank you so much for joining us today. You've been doing this since 1996, writing about personal finance. So from that perspective, how does this compare to the 2008 financial crisis? Thanks, Emily. Uh, Unfortunately, I think this is right up there with that one. I mean, it's pretty obvious. We're already 30% down on the S&P 500, at least when this week began. And uh, and it's pretty serious. I mean, this is not just a, it's not a financial crisis; it's a medical crisis. But the medical crisis is just so pervasive worldwide, as you know. And I think people are starting to panic. You know, retail people who have advisors—they're probably holding the course and all that, and maybe trimming a little bit. But as a result, I mean, that's why the S and P five hundred is down you know, tr- down thirty percent. And uh, remember the. Uh, 2078, I believe it was down 50%. So, you know, we may only be halfway. Now, of course, the Fed and the US government is pushing everything, basically infinite QE, to kind of keep this aloft. And let's pray to the great hereafter that they do succeed in keeping it aloft. If, if it does go up, it may be the chance for people to reassess their risk tolerance and uh, take some measures. But it's never a good idea to panic in a down market. Never a good idea to panic, but we do see, uh, I mean, a massive sell-off so far. From a personal point of view, how often have you been checking your portfolio? And are you taking any actions here? Would, would I be a bad person if I said I every day? One <laughs> of the occupational hazards of working from home and being semi-retired is you got time for that. So yeah, we tend to uh, take a look uh, pretty often. Taking limited actions, uh, you know, obviously I'm going to be, you know, I'm 66. So I mean, if you believe a retiree should be uh, two-thirds their age, fixed income, that would be 66, two-thirds percent. So in our own registered plans, we were pretty um, conservative anyway. Where we're taking a hit like everybody else is on our non-registered NTFSAs because those tend to be growth in stocky things. What do you do if all your money is tied up in the stock market right now and you're seeing those massive losses? What advice would you give to people who are seeing this and maybe trying not to panic but having a hard time doing that? Yeah, again, as I know it's all about generations. I mean, really, if you're a young person, your 20s, your 30s, you should actually 
welcome this because they're putting stocks on sale. I mean, we've been, you know, up till a couple of weeks ago and uh, until February, stocks were kind of as, as so arguably a little overvalued and it was bubble-like. And it must have been very frustrating for young investors to have to buy stocks that were so priced for perfection. On the other hand, if you've, you know, a lot, you know aging baby boomers, people are retired or thinking about retired, you know, this is very stressful, particularly if they were, I mean, I feel sorry for a retiree who's 100% in stocks. I mean, they've got a serious, they shouldn't have been, and hopefully there aren't that many. But if they were and are, uh, it's nice to tell young people they can wait for 20 or 30 years to for markets to recover and they can buy some stocks while they're cheap. All true. But if you're in your 60s and 70s, you don't have 20 or 30 more years. So it's it's quite a dilemma. Hopefully you have a really good financial advisor who's guiding you through this. What does this mean for stock portfolios and investment portfolios going forward? How do you think this will change how people evaluate risk? You know, there's a lot of people who think that, you know, dividend paying stock, I mean, you have this whole fire movement, financial independence, retire early. And their feeling is like you create a big non-registered portfolio of dividend paying stocks, you know, BCE pays what, 4%, the banks 4 or 5 In theory, it shouldn't matter what you can sell the stocks for because you don't want to sell. You just want to collect those dividends and 4% is better than a GIC paying 2%. But unfortunately, you, you, that doesn't change the fact when you look at your portfolio is down that much. I think uh, certainly when it comes to, yes, it's a buying opportunity if you have the cash. The danger here is you deploy the cash too early and the market keeps going down and you wish you'd held back some. I mean, it's quite possible, and this happened in 2007, 2008, that by holding your cash, what your cash you have, at say three months at a time, because the bear market could go on for a year, even two years. You know, you may be astonished to look at November and say, wow, the bank stocks have come back down so far that now BMO is paying nine or 10% and that kind of thing. You got to plan for that possibility. So if you did have the cash to invest right now, what strategy would you use? Would you be waiting for a bit? Would you be throwing some money into the markets now? Yeah, I think you have to um, you have to kind of put it out in tranches, you know, like maybe think about it as a divide your what cash you have into a tranches of five parts and say that I'm not I'm I'm only going to deploy one fifth this week, even if markets go way down. And yes, it's a buying opportunity in theory. And you say, oh great, those dividend paying stocks I love are paying you know one percent more than if I'd waited, but they could be on sale even more. So that's the only prudent thing to do. But the big question is, do you have the cash? And if you don't, and then of course you got all the taxable thing too. I mean, if it's a taxable portfolio, you got to consider the you know capital gains and capital losses, and hopefully keep them equal. So when it comes to tax time a year from now, you don't have a big tax problem one way or the other. The other question is RSPs and TFSAs. There at least you don't have to worry about taxes uh, on investment on capital gains and in, and interest income. Personally, um, being the old age that I am, uh, we were always very heavy on fixed income in registered portfolios. But as I said earlier, you know the, the non-registered is. Uh, there's a lot. There's things you can do. I mean, there's also you know some people with a good advisor and the technical proficiency can um, you know buy reverse ETS for example. So it's not like you can do nothing. Right. When it comes to ETFs, you know, ETFs and index funds have been increasingly popular. They've obviously gone down too in this scenario. What do you think that means for the future of those investment tools? Is there going to be a rethink there or do you think they will maintain their popularity once this wraps up? 
I think they'll maintain their popularity. Uh, and you could ask the same thing about robo-advisors, which are basically using ETFs and managing them for you. Um, I would look to something like the Vanguard Asset Allocation ETFs, uh, and iShares has the same thing. So most of these, uh, the balanced uh, ETF portfolios are, depending on how you want, you, which one you pick of five, are 100% in stocks, 80% stocks, and 20% fixed income, et cetera, et cetera. So, for example, I was up till now quite fond of VBAL or XBAL, which are 60% stocks, 40% bonds, the classic pension fund asset allocation. Now, arguably, in this, you asked me what to do. You could, I guess, partially sell VBAL and then go one level down. So you go down to, in their case, VCNS, Vanguard, which is the flip. It's 60% fixed income, 40% stocks. And again, retirees should probably be 60% in fixed income anyway. So when you, when you look at these asset allocation ETFs, uh, you, you could say, I'm not changing my risk tolerance, but maybe I'll go down one level. Now that I've had this wake-up call that, yes, Virginia markets can go down and go down very fast. You know what they say, the markets go up on an escalator and they come down on an elevator. And it's been quite an elevator ride the last three, four weeks. Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, just such a, as you say, a wake up call to people who have been used to the stock prices just continuously rising for years now. What do you see as um, as the benefits or drawbacks of robo advisors versus real people advisors in the midst of this? Are, do you think this is going to change people's approach to technology, given there has been kind of an explosion in an automation of the investment industry. Yeah, there's a question. There was a thread about this on Twitter the other day, I guess on the weekend, about how fast have the robo-advisors responded to the um, the COVID crisis uh, and whether they've sort of rejigged their portfolios. I don't think they move quite that quickly. I think it's a myth that there are no human advisors and robo-advisors. Most of them do have uh, telephone people you can call if you need to, or at least they put out some uh, kind of generalized email alert to uh, kind of calm people down, calming emails, I guess they call it. Hopefully, if you had created your risk tolerance in advance with with, with them, uh, you already had a portfolio that was close to uh, what was appropriate for your age and your risk objectives. I think, again, many people, as you said, in an 11-year bull market, maybe they thought they could take a little more risk than they, they actually were prepared to take now that they've experienced a 30% loss. I don't think, I think robo-advisors come, could come out of this shining, you know, all roses. Uh, let's hope that they do because if it helps if they stick to the plan and they're more likely to do that than a panically individual do-yourself investor, it might be a great time for robo-advisors. Same with the asset allocation ETFs we discussed, same idea. You know, you're, you're, you're buying, you know, it ideally, and the other good thing about asset allocation ETFs and robo-advisors is there's automatic rebalancing. So, for example, any of those funds I mentioned, uh, let's say even if you're one that was only 40% in stocks, well, the stocks just came down, rebalancing would say you got to buy some stocks to get the stocks back up to 40. And to do that, they'd sell some of the 60% fixed income. That's hard to do on your own, but it's being done for you by robo-advisors and then these asset allocation ETFs. So again, I think both the ETFs and robo-advisors could uh, serve their customers well, assuming that the client didn't grossly overestimate to meet their risk tolerance when they first set up their allocation of what they're going to buy. 
always that tricky, tricky balancing equation of how much risk you're willing to take. In Canada, I know a lot of people have real estate as one of their massive investments. Now, there's mixed predictions on how the COVID-19 chaos will affect the real estate market. How would you advise Canadians to look at that portion of their investment portfolio? Yeah, I mean, I'd say if 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 it's your principal residence you're worried about, and you've already paid for the home, I mean, ours is long paid for. I I don't even worry about it. We love our home. It's near the lake. It's paid for. Uh, it's a shelter in the storm, and especially now with all the stuff about having to stay at home and work at home, that's what you want—a paid-for house shelter. Now, if you're talking about investment real estate, you bought two or three investment real estate properties. Uh, that's a whole question beyond my expertise. I what I do own, I've always I always believed in owning maybe five to ten percent in REITs, ETFs that own REITs or real estate investment trusts. Historically, in these kind of bear markets, they're not as correlated to the stock market. So in other words, if the S&P 500 is down, you know, 30%. Yes, the REITs are probably taking a hit, but maybe it's only 15 or 20%. I haven't checked lately. I certainly haven't sold any REITs. And again, it's again it's income. And so to the extent that we, if we talk about job losses and having enough income to survive, uh, REITs generally pay like a bank dividend or better uh, and a lot better than, say, a GIC. So um, I would not panic if I were a real estate investor. I think the panic is mostly people who are too overweight Canadian and U.S. stocks. What about for people who are just entering the market. This is that generational divide again when we're talking about, you know, people who are maybe in the millennial demographic versus Gen X or the boomers. There has been some movement from the banks saying they will allow for some mortgage deferrals during this period. You know, what would you advise people who are just sort of entering the real estate market and this has been their massive investment because that has been the advice, you know, invest in real estate, invest in real estate, buy a home. How how do you think they should react in a moment like this? Well, actually, all of this is kind of good news for young people, I think. I mean, A, stocks are on sale, finally. And B, interest rates are going back down again. They're even talking about close to zero, which means that if you have a variable rate mortgage, I would think that that's going to be, you could probably, that's probably going to last for two or three years. So you could probably go sh short and variable and have, I mean, you know, it's practically free money I mean, from my perspective compared to somebody who had a mortgage of, uh, you know, 12% back in the 80s. Um, so I I wouldn't be too worried about it. You could once the mortgage rates come down, maybe in a couple more weeks, and you could lock in, I guess, to a fixed rate. But I think you're probably on pretty safe ground to to keep it short for now. Now, if you'd asked me that question six months ago, I probably would have said go long. So things change and are constantly in flux, obviously. Absolutely, especially with surprise events like this. We've also seen uh, the number of employment insurance applications just skyrocket. In the first week of the crisis where people were staying home at earnest, there was 500,000 EI applications compared to 27,000 the same period last March. I'm wondering, what advice do you have for people if they have just lost their job or are feeling like their employment status could be pretty precarious right now? Well, Obviously, if you've lost your job, you should apply immediately to the Unemployment Insurance Commission or Employment Insurance, I guess they call it now. goes without saying. Um, you could go to the bank and if you have a line of credit, 
saying we may need to use it a little bit, again, the line of credit should be, as in the case of the variable rate mortgage, pretty low interest rates. Not free, but low enough if you really need a lifeline. You know, credit cards you could use sparingly, but keeping in mind, they still manage, doesn't matter how low interest rates are, when you're dishing it out to the credit card companies, you're still paying 18, 20%. Maybe it's gone down lately. As always, you got a, you've got a 30 days free money and then you got to pay it off in full. And you certainly don't want to just pay the minimum balance or you'll be paying them forever. How do, how do you see this playing out? You know, what if you're an investor, advice to investors who are trying to figure out h- how long to wait to get into the market or maybe how quickly to take action and readjust their risk tolerances. What's your general advice there? Well, for example, if you have any big gains still, and, and particularly if they're in your registered plan, like, you know, the FANG stocks, for example, if you bought them five or six years ago. And those are the uh, the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google type of stocks. I, I, all of which she owns. But, you know, we, we had taken profits on the way up. And, uh, you know, they were, we're still, even now after this correction, we're sitting on doubles and triples. So, you know, you can sell half. And if it keeps on going up, sell another half. And then that's what they call playing with the house's money. But not everybody has those kind of gains. And right now, you're probably more looking at, well, in our case, I look at our portfolio going back 20 years, and I'm a buy and hold investor for the long term. And for the longest time, we had embedded gains and capital gains, which you tend not to want to trigger because you've got to pay capital gains tax. Um, so you could look at your portfolio, and you may have a rude awakening and find out that you know, basically five years of gains. You're, you may even still be in the plus relative to five, six years ago. But now you have, if, if let, let's say you bought, I don't know, BCE or some stock eight years ago, and you were sitting on this huge 50% gain, and now the gain is only 20%. Well, if, if you've revalued your, your um, risk tolerance and you've decided, I'm happy with that, with, um, you know, their dividend, uh, and I'm happy taking um, a little bit of a profit now. The capital gains won't be as much if I triggered it earlier. And if you find a few losers too, let's say you, you lost money on marijuana stocks or something, which many Canadians did, then you could say, okay, I'm going to sell a quarter of my non-registered BCE or a bank. And I'm going to sell off that dog of a, a marijuana ETF. The capital gains uh, offsets the losses. And so you're not going to have a tax liability, none to speak of. And meanwhile, you have some cash, which hopefully you will intelligently deploy and not in a hurry. Not in a hurry, indeed. Um, any final personal finance tips to help people get through this time of uncertainty? Well, would it be trite to, to remind people that, you know, buy low, sell high is generally a good advice because emotionally we are animals who are tr- tend to do the opposite. So uh, many people would say, you're not, particularly young people, you're I don't think they should be panicking and selling right now. If you're uh, if you're retired or semi-retired and you haven't been in the proper asset allocation because you really thought the bull market was going on forever, A, you have my sympathies, and B, you better talk to an advisor about what you can do to uh, make sure this doesn't happen again. Uh, I would focus as much, obviously, with COVID um, on health. I mean, personally, I'm walking by the lake three times a day, you know, I'll listen to podcasts like this, for example. <laughs> but, uh, you, I mean, you... you, you to me, it's like get that 10,000 steps a day. That's not exactly personal finance. But you, you can make better decisions and be less inclined to panic and, and succumb to this media. Over, and I, as much as I love all those in the media, right now the danger is we overload on all this stuff. And, and, and it could be uh, rather disheartening. So keep a balance in mind and try to do social social distancing for sure. But also all, try to keep the networks going that you have. That's the good thing about social media companies like you know Facebook and all these 
these things. Uh, our church, for example, we, we we have online services. So just pay attention to your physical and your spiritual life and, and don't let it completely affect your financial life. John, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Emily. Anytime. That was Financial Post personal finance columnist and author John Chevreau. Thank you so much for listening to Down to Business. A big thank you to our team for pulling this together remotely again this week. Music and production by Bryce Hall and editing by Yadula Hussain. We also have web support from Pamela Heaven. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. I'm Emily Jackson, and until next week, I hope you all stay healthy and you're enjoying your social distancing. You can still get all your business news at financialpost.com.